We're in the book of the Judges. This is part nine today. And if you're joining us for the first time, whether listening online or you're here with us, the book of the Judges finds Israel in a very dark time, a very turbulent time. It picks up after the story of the conquest, the time of Joshua, when the people crossed over the Jordan River and they conquered the land. They conquered most of the land, but they didn't conquer all of the land under Joshua. And part of that reason is given in Judges chapter 2.22. Part of the reason why Israel didn't conquer all the land was in order for God to test the subsequent generations to see if they would be faithful to God, to see if they would obey God. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. But what happens in the story of the judges, they go into the land, and they settle. They decide, they're okay with not driving out the nations. They're okay just living in and among and around them. And what happens time and time again throughout the story is the nations around them introduce them to sin and idolatry and they begin to turn their backs on God and no longer walk with him and they begin to worship these other gods and then as a result God will over and over again raise up other nations to oppress the people get their attention they'll cry out to God and he'll respond with providing a judge or a deliverer which is really a better translation the book of the deliverers, and that deliverer will deal with this external threat, militarily usually, and drive away the foreign nation, and then everyone will be good for a while, and then this cycle is just going to repeat again and again. Each time it gets progressively worse. Well, as we saw in part eight, which would have been chapter four, we went through the story of Deborah and Barak, The people have been oppressed by Jabin, king of Hazor, for 20 years. He's got his five-star, like, recruit, like, cream of the crop, general Sisera that commands his 900 iron chariots dealing with advanced advanced military tech, those iron chariots, and they, uh, they cruelly oppress Israel for 20 years. And then God, through the prophetess Deborah, calls out Barak to lead to lead the military. And of course, Barak, if you remember the story, he says he doesn't want to go. Or rather, he puts conditions upon his obedience to God. He says, all right, well, I'll go, I'll serve, I'll obey if this is what God wants, but Deborah's got to go with me. Deborah's got to go with me. And of course, she says, okay, I'll go with you, but because you weren't willing to obey God and trust God and serve God, you're going to miss out on a blessing. You're going to, literally, the glory, that's the word used, you're, you're going to miss that. It's going to be given to a woman, J.L. And they go, they fight, they win, they kill everybody. The enemy general Sisera's on the run. Barak, now he's a little bit more confident, rides him down, trying to catch up with him. He wants the glory, he wants the blessing of being able to take the enemy general. And he finds himself in the tent of a woman who... Gives him some milk, he asks for water, gets him to fall asleep, and then nails a a tent peg right through his head to the ground and kills him. And so that's where our story today, it's kind of a part two, you might call it, of the lesser known 
Song of Deborah and Barak. That's where we pick up today in chapter 5, part 9 of our series through the book of the Judges. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the elders, excuse me, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Barak might not have been the best example, not responding the way he should have responded, putting conditions upon his obedience, but here we find out that in the course of these events that took place in chapter 4, there were some really good examples, unlike Barak, who did respond to the call, who offered themselves to meet the need. And for that reason, they sing and they're celebrating. It's a time of celebration here. Think of it. They just won this amazing battle that they really shouldn't have won on paper. And they finish verse 2 with the phrase, bless the Lord. We're singing a song with that phrase in it earlier. And I realize within the Christianese jargon and language that we often use, we sometimes, I'm not sure if we, if we know what we're actually saying. We use the phrase, bless the Lord. What does it actually mean? Now, we might know it, but we might just have a hard time articulating it. But to answer that question, it really depends on who's the one doing the blessing because it does change the meaning. For example, if you have someone greater blessing someone inferior, to bless them means to endow, to give someone a special gift or a special power. But when someone lesser, as is in this case, blesses someone superior, it means to acknowledge that person as the source of that power, as the source, the giver of the gift. Quite a gift to beat Sisera and his 900 iron chariots, you should think. So in a context like this, bless the Lord is virtually synonymous with praise. Praise. So Yahweh in being blessed in this song is being recognized as the worthy object, the only worthy object of praise because the people have eagerly volunteered for battle. Like this whole thing has come together. They shouldn't have won on paper. They win. How does that happen? God. God. And so we're blessing God. We're praising God. We're acknowledging God as the source for really giving this victory to us because he doesn't give it. We don't have it. You can maybe feel the excitement there. They're singing this song. They're pumped. You would be too if there was a different flag flying over these flagpoles for 20 years. You would be really excited. Just imagine that, right? There's no American flag out there for 20 years. You'd be excited. You imagine that? then you can begin to feel the excitement in these verses as Tebra and Brock sing this song. Hear, O kings, verse 3. Give ear, O princes. Like, listen up. I want you guys to hear me. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Most likely these kings, these Canaanite princes, they're probably not present. But if they were, or if they maybe are, this would be like salt in the wound. They just got a licking put on them. I think that's how you say it here in the South. 
I mean, they got lit up. They did. They got lit up. And hearing Deborah be like, hey, everybody, I know we just killed you all in battle. I'm just going to sing about it now. She doesn't really care. She's, I mean, she is just boasting and praising God for this amazing victory. And then notice the vivid imagery. You guys are big English people. Look at verses 4 and 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. She pictures Yahweh as this divine warrior. Marching forth from the south geographically, from Seir, from Eden, to the aid of his people, every step he takes causes the earth to rattle. And as he passes through the heavens, the skies, they release their water to the ground. That's the picture of the warrior king marching, coming to the aid to help his people, a people who have been treated cruelly for now 20 years. But this vivid imagery that she has here in verses 4 and 5 also represents a deliberate polemic. And by polemic, I mean a strong verbal written attack against many of the perspectives that have been cherished by the kings whom the poet has summoned to listen to. Verse 3, Hero Kings. She's, she's taking a little jab at these cherished ideas within Canaanite mythology. You see, within Canaanite mythology, Baal was the god of the storm. He resided in the north, near where this battle took place, Mount Zephun. And this Israelite victory over Sisera in chapter 4, over Jabin in chapter 4, it's more than just an earthly victory. It represented the fact that Baal, your storm god, he's not the storm god. Baal, who you think reigns supreme, he doesn't reign supreme. Yahweh, our warrior king, just came and smoked you guys like a cheap cigar. So yeah, I want you to listen. That's, that's what just happened. Here, O kings, here, O princess. You see the vivid imagery. Yahweh coming, every step rattling the ground. As he passes through the heavens, the water releases. Canaanite mythology, Baal's the god of the storm. Baal brings the water. Nope. Nope, he doesn't. And so she's taking a very intentional shot at these perspectives held by the Canaanites. And yet, it also has a very similar effect for many of the Israelites. For the Israelites? Yeah. For the Israelites whose fascination with the Canaanite gods like Baal ultimately has brought about this crisis. Think back to chapter 4, verse 1. And again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they were treated cruelly by Jabin, king of Hazor, for 20 years. How does that happen? Because they didn't obey God. They didn't finish the conquest. They settled. That's ah, all right. We got this, right? It'll be okay. Right? I can go and be in this situation or environment on a Friday night, and you know what? It, it'll, it's okay. I have enough self-control. 
I'm just throwing out applications here. And the people turn their hearts from God. Yeah, Deborah's taking a shot against the Canaanites, their cherished view of their, their storm god Baal, but it's so much more than that because it's that same fascination with Baal that's brought Israel into the present crisis. It's a bit of a reality check for these people. I think when we hear stories like this, sometimes we're, we're quick to rule out in our own lives any sort of link between us and them. I'm going to guess that probably none of you in this room probably have ever worshipped any of the Canaanite gods. I'm just going to guess. Probably fair to say. Maybe I'm wrong. And so when we, we look at these stories, we're quick to, I think, dismiss them in any sort of practical application from the text. But step back. Step back. And think of the story in a more simple form. God's people had a fascination with idolatry and sin, end quote. Okay, I can relate to that. A fascination with idolatry and sin, yeah. You see, the storm god Baal, from an Israelite perspective, well, maybe he can help us out. We're in a very agricultural society. We need the weather to cooperate with our land. If the weather cooperates with our our land and we get the water we need at the right time... That's more dollars and cents in my bank account. Right? Think of it from an Israelite perspective. This is, this is what's true for them. And so, all right, maybe I'll, I'll start dabbling in this, right? Maybe, uh, maybe I'll let some of our Canaanite neighbors that we live in and among, well, I'll let them kind of introduce me. Because if it brings about economic prosperity, well, what's so bad about that? But that's what sin does. Sin overpromises and sin underdelivers. That's what it does. It makes these promises. If you worship the storm god Baal, you'll get the water you need for your crops. You get the water you need for your crops, things will go well, and you'll have essentially more money in your bank account. If you do this, then this, right? And it's going to have the very opposite effect for these people. But that's once again what sin does overpromises, underdelivers. So if I do X, Y, and Z with this guy or girl, well then I'll feel secure or loved or good or I'll have fun. Or if I tear this person down, I can build myself up to look really, really good. Whatever the application is, Sin makes all sorts of promises, and it never delivers, ever. And so Deborah, Deborah sets the record straight. Not only has the fascination with the storm god Baal, not only Israel's fascination really with sin not delivered, but it's the reason they're in this crisis, and it ultimately reminds us, no, Baal does not reign supreme. When Yahweh walks, when he marches, not only does the earth rattle, but he releases the water from the heavens. It reminds us that only God can really provide what we really want. Only he can. Everyone wants to be happy. The problem is, is the world is looking in all the wrong places. 
And there's all sorts of promises that you might find happiness in a relationship or a job or a career or in the next raise you get or whatever it might be. If only this, then I'll have arrived. Then it'll be better. And not that those things are in and of and wrong of themselves, but when they become those idols, when they replace our trust and obedience to God, yeah, it becomes a, a problem. And that's what we're chasing after. It's nothing new. Your father, Adam, your mother, Eve, same story, right? If you eat of this fruit, whole, what's the promise? You'll become like, yes, right? So there's the promise. But you know the story. It doesn't deliver. That's what sin does. That's the issue here. So when she's showcasing this vivid imagery, it's not simply for the benefit of the Canaanites. It's for some of their own people who got themselves into this mess in the first place. God is the one who can bring you, only God is the one who can bring you what you want and what you really need. In the days of Shamgar, verse 6, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Everyone was off the main roads and the travelers kept to the byways, the back roads, the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, yeah, that's a bad idea. Then war was at the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? She begins this next section with an admiration of these two characters. Shamgar, there's only one verse about him. Except this verse, I guess that would be two. But I preached on him back in chapter 331. He was the guy who went out and killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. And then she references Jael from chapter 4. She's the one that hammered the stake through Sisera's head. And so there's this admiration that she has for these two people who you may remember, I've argued, are not followers of God. They're not worshipers of the true God. They're not, they're not serving Yahweh. And yet God in his mercy has ordained the actions of non-believers to bring about the salvation of his people and his own glory. When Shamgar and Jael do the things that they do that ultimately benefit Israel, as far as we can tell, they have zero spiritual motivation. They have zero motivation to help Israel or glorify God, and yet God has seemingly brought about, ordained their actions to serve for the benefit of Israel and his own glory. And so there's a certain admiration that Deborah has here in, in mentioning them, and yet it's a bittersweet mention. It's bittersweet. She mentioned Shamgar and Jael. But if you think about the story from chapter 4, who misses the blessing? Who misses the opportunity for glory? Remember? Barak does. I can make the same argument with Shamgar. It's a sweet thing these two people are listed here, but how sad. How sad that Barak's name is not there. You can make the argument in verse 6, Barak's name should have been there. Someone else's name should have been there instead of Shamgar. I mean, great for them, 
But how sad for the people of Israel. There's also, I think, a lament here that there was no one willing to step up in all of Israel. That's the story in chapter 4 with Barak. I'll, I'll obey God, I'll serve God, but only if you meet these conditions, right? No doubt that's most likely the same story of Shamgar. And unfortunately for many of us, that's our story. God, I'll do this. I'll go there. I'll step up. I'll serve. I'll obey so long as you do what I want you to do. And then we usually package it in the form of a prayer request so it sounds more spiritual and less demanding. So long as you answer my prayer, then I'll do that. I don't think that's what God's looking for. Not that type of obedience. There's no one willing to step up. And it's certainly evidenced by the fact that there's two non-Israelites mentioned here who really became the saviors and deliverers for Israel. No one was willing to step up. She knows it. Now Israel knows it. And there's so many people today in the church. And they think they're doing God this huge favor because they give God like 2% of their time. They give them like 2% of their time and they think they're doing God a huge favor. I met a girl one time. She came and we were talking and she shared how she comes here. Not anymore. She comes here once a week, 90 minutes, that's for God. And the rest of the week, that's her time. That's a direct quote. And I said, why do you think the rest of the week is your time? Like, what is it that you think that because you come here 90 minutes once a week that you've done what you're supposed to do and now the rest of the week is your time? I said, it's not your time. It's God's time. And yet, many American Christians, air quotes, not air quotes, they think that they're doing God some huge favor because they give Him 2% of the time. And it's so sad because today, just like in Israel, you find... 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. And then the 90% of the people who come and they think they're doing God some huge favor because they warm a pew once a week for 90 minutes, that somehow they're impressing God. They're not. We're not. It's not, all right, I'm going to give you these 90 minutes and the other 100... 66.5 hours, that's my time. It's all God's time. And yet oftentimes we position ourselves in such a way that we're going to negotiate and bargain with the king of the universe. That doesn't go well. I mean, look at Barak. He misses this blessing. His name should have been here. I'm going to argue that all day long. And it's not. It's not at all. Notice... Notice the political and economic situation here. The highways were abandoned. The travelers kept the byways. Most likely they're abandoned because it's not safe for the Israelites to travel during this period of 20 years where they're being treated cruelly by Jabin, king of Hazor. I mean, just imagine that, right? Not just the inconvenience, but the, the, the political, economic impact. You can't use Timberlake or Ward's Road, right? Because it's just too dangerous. You want to go to Chick-fil-A? You want to go to Blaze tonight, right? 
You want to go blaze on Ward's Road? Okay, we're, we're going to have to walk there from here. Okay? Not just an inconvenience. Like, there is a political, economic impact here. They can't. No doubt, probably for fear of what the Canaanites might do, or maybe they're going to be extorted along the way, taken advantage of. And then what do you see? I, Deborah, arose as mother in Israel. I, Deborah. She pictures herself as this tender, caring mother. And really, by extension, it's the picture of our father, right? She's the agent. She's the prophetess. She's the spokesperson for God. And in her saying this, it also shows the love that God has for his people, despite all the garbage going on. He sees the people. He sees their suffering. He sees their hurts. Yeah, they brought it upon themselves, but he still cares, which is amazing. They brought it upon themselves. They're not, they're not what right looks like, and he still cares. And that picture of Deborah and just being that mother, it's a picture of God and his care for his people. Verse 8, when new gods were chosen, yeah, that was just a terrible idea. Then war was in the gates with shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. And what you see here in that question, was shield or spear to be seen, this rhetorical question, obviously the answer is no, but it's no for really, I think, two reasons. One, because of will, and second, because of resources. When I say one, because of will, that the people lack the will. Should they actually have the shields or spears? The spears? doesn't matter. They don't have the will. And that's reflected in verse 6. Verse 6. The fact that no one was willing to step up. No one was willing to lead. No one was willing to serve. They didn't have the will. That's why God had to ordain the actions of these non, we'd say non-Christians, these non-followers of the true God, Yahweh. But they certainly, I think, you could also make the argument they also lack the resources because of the political, socioeconomic struggle that they have been dealing with for 20 years. They don't probably have the weapons. With shield or spear to be seen? Nope. Like, we can't even use Timberlake or Ward's Road. Like, we can't even get on the main roads at all. That's how tough things are. And the ironic thing is, no doubt it was their fascination, yes, that brought this on, but it was not never supposed to bring this on. This was supposed to, in following Baal and worshiping Baal, it was supposed to have the opposite effect. The crops were supposed to have the water. The bank accounts were supposed to go up. And once again, you see just what sin does. It makes all these promises and then just doesn't ever deliver. And some of us, we just fall into the same trap and same trick day after day, week after week with those different sin issues that just hound us. And every time we think, well, maybe it'll be different this time, right? And it isn't. And we fall flat on our face, stepping in the same pothole every single time. My heart, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. She restates what she does in the opening verses. Blessing the Lord, commending many of the leaders, the commanders in Israel. Verse 10, tell of it you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. 
to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. I want you to hear about it. I want to tell you about it. I want to post it and repost it on all social media. I mean, modern day, Deborah's saying this. I want everybody to know we're going to be singing, we're going to be saying it everywhere and anywhere, especially at the watering places. These have been like the cool soda shops or whatever is the cool hangout place now. We're going we're gonna to get the word out, and I want everybody to know, especially those smug Canaanites who are riding around on their white donkeys. Most people just use gray, but the white ones, well, they're more rare, and so it showcases their wealth with their rich, luxurious blankets. And there, notice, notice for the Canaanites, they're walking by the way. We're all using the back roads, having to walk through the woods to get to anywhere because we're afraid, and they're just rolling up on wards. They're rolling up on timber. Like, they're using the main roads. Okay, well, you know what? Let's get the word out to them. Let's put them on blast of what God has done, the warrior king. Let them know who he is. They're thinking, Baal is the god of the storm. Baal reigns supreme. Not anymore, not today. So you let them know what went down. You let them know how Sisera got his head nailed to the ground, how his entire fleet of iron chariots was destroyed. You let them know that, these smug little Canaanites. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, break out in a song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. Verse 13. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen from Makar, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar, came with Deborah. And Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. You've got to be kidding me. Israel is going to dare attack Jabin, specifically his commander, Sisera? You're going to dare attack them? Their vastly superior military? It's like guys going out with guns against guys with tanks. You're really going to do that? Seems like a mistake. But not for Israel. Not for Israel who, before the battle unfolds, Deborah tells Barak in chapter 4, does not our God go out before you? Does not our God go out before you, Barak? Maybe it's a mistake, but not for Israel, whose God goes out before them, the warrior king who marches from Seir and Edom from the south, every step he takes rattles the ground. As he passes through the heavens, he releases the waters. Not a mistake. Not for Israel. And she commends the different tribes. Ephraim, one of Joseph's sons, Benjamin, Maker, Manassas, 
oldest son back in Genesis chapter 50, representing the tribe of Manasseh, Zebulun and Issachar. How faithful they were. They were there in the trenches. They had Barak's back. And they are now specifically mentioned and commended throughout this story. But not all was well between the tribes and the clans. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben? There were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did you stay, Gilead? And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? You knew we needed you. Why did you stay? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. What are you doing, Asher? What are you doing, Dan? What are you doing, Gilead? Reuben, what the heck? It is an image of men who cannot be bothered, who are indifferent to the present reality, their countrymen, their brothers and sisters who are in need of help, and they don't care. Their brothers and sisters are hurting, and they don't care. Their brothers and sisters need help, they don't care. They can't be bothered. They're selfish. You use a lot of different words, but they're selfish. There's a need. Nah, let someone else do it. Let someone else deal with it. Now, I mentioned earlier how bittersweet it is when Deborah sings of Shamgar and Jael in verse 6. How bittersweet. Bitter because no one in Israel stepped up. Just like they didn't step up at this time. Some did, yes. But many of them, many of them didn't step up. That's the tragedy. They didn't care to. This pattern, this pattern of behavior. Today, many churches, you have the same thing. You have 10% of the people doing 90% of the work, and then 90% of the people thinking they're doing God this great service because they come once a week and warm a pew. And they think that God somehow is impressed with them. He's not. He's not impressed. And he's not happy with these people, as we'll see shortly. And contrasting this is verse 18. Oh, Zebulon. Oh, Naphtali. Verse 18, Zebulon is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. You want to see what loyalty looks like? It looks like these two tribes willing to offer their lives because they knew their brothers and sisters needed help. They came to the aid. They responded to the call. That's what loyalty looks like. Think about how we pray every week for the persecuted church. You got Pastor Wang, Pastor John imprisoned in China. You got Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. You have Pastor Yusuf in Iran in prison. 
And then the American church has these people who can't be bothered to do anything more than best case scenario, come once a week and warm a pew for 90 minutes. Doesn't seem right. Recall a story David Platt told once. He's having a conversation, working with underground church and close countries, and someone made the comment about being more like the church in America, and he said, well, you got it all wrong. You don't want to be anything more like the church in America. You don't. If anything, we want to be like you. We need to be like you. Pastor Wang is in prison as a Christian for preaching the word. Pastor John, Leah Sherabu, held by Boko Haram, Pastor Yusuf in Iran, and we got people in our churches from California to Virginia that think that they're doing God this great favor because they come once a week and warm a pew. It's sad. When there's such a need today, and for many American Christians, they just don't grasp the urgency. The people are dying and going to hell. And we're, we care more just going through the routines. Such a need. And yet, so few answer the call. So few. But not Zebulun and not Naphtali. They're ready to die. They're ready to die. That's a big deal. The kings came, 19. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon, the river Kishon, it swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, the galloping of his steeds. Here in these series of verses, man, sister, there's no way he could have expected this. On paper, he wins. 99 out of 100 times, Sisera wins. No, nah, he wins a hundred out of a hundred times. Apart from divine intervention and the imagery of the stars coming from heaven, leaving their courses to fight, is an imagery that Deborah draws upon, very common in the ancient Near Eastern literary motive, according to which the gods would come and intervene on behalf of their peoples. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. And of course, the how this happens is with the river Kishon flooding. Those 900 iron chariots, they are very effective. But they do really good at open terrain, hard terrain. But if that terrain is mountainous, or if that terrain in this case is mushy and wet, they become very combat ineffective. And that's exactly what happens. Think about the imagery in verse 6. 
The warrior king marching from the south, coming to the aid of his people. Every step he takes causes the earth to shake. As he passes through the heavens, it releases their rains. I am guessing that no one expected the Kishon River to be flooding at this point in time for the battle. If Sisera knew this, he wouldn't have brought his chariots out in this geographical area. But that's the whole point. Sisera wins this battle every time, with one exception. When the warrior king Yahweh comes to the aid of his people, then it's all over. And the horses are heard trying to escape as all of Sisera's men are slaughtered. That's, that's your God. That's who he is. That's what he does. 23, curse Moreau, says the angel of the Lord. Moreau's only mentioned here in the Old Testament, but here it represents Israel. It represents Israel who has taken their stand on the side of the Canaanites. Say, the Israelites didn't fight with the Canaanites. That's how they're viewed. No, the only problem with the, with the Israelites, with Reuben and Asher and Dan and Gilead, is that they sat by and they didn't come to the aid. And yet they're going to be viewed here in their passivity as if they joined with the Canaanites and fought against their brothers. Curse Moroz, who represents all who have this in common. They're cursed says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. God is not happy with some of the people in Israel. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of the tent-dwelling women, most blessed he asked for water, speaking of Sisera, recounting the end of chapter 4. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Oh, J.L., most blessed among women. She has a lot of nice things to say about her. And then the story takes a very interesting twist at the end and gives us a unique perspective, that of the enemy general Sisera, his mother. She's concerned. He's taking too long. He should have gone out there, crushed them, and already been home for supper. She's beginning to worry. Verse 28, out of the window she, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. She knows something's not right. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? We begin maybe to even feel a little sorry for Sisera's mom. After all, she's a mom. Even enemy generals, they have moms too. But those feelings of sorrow will be short-lived. And the following verses reveal just what sort of woman this is. Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she comes up with her own answer. 
Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Put verse 30 back on the screen. Shouldn't they have had enough time to go crush these little puny, insignificant Israelites and then taken all the loot to have been able to go and each man at least have enough time to rape maybe one, heck, maybe two women? But she doesn't even use the word woman or maiden or girl. She uses more of a derogatory term, the phrase womb. Womb. Because to Sisera's mom, that's all these women are. They're just simple play toys for the boys. They should have been able to have gone out and had sex with at least one or two of those girls and already been back home for dinner. Maybe such a refined woman we would expect to speak differently about other women. Not Sisera's mom, and you realize just how wicked she is. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. And then at that point, you're like, man, I'm glad. I'm glad J.L. nailed that tent peg through that guy's head. What a loser. I think if that's what his mom is like, imagine, imagine what he is like. May all your enemies perish. May all their endings be like Sisera with a metal spike through his head. But your friends, may they rise like the sun as it rises in its might. An enemy of God is anyone who doesn't follow God is anyone who doesn't obey God. An enemy of God is anyone going the opposite against God's agenda. Here in this context, it's the Canaanites. But in the broader context, if the Israelites persist, if they persist, if they continue to behave like the Canaanites, which of course they will, they will be treated as God's enemies. This curse virtually will apply to them as well. And so we come to the end of our story and it begs the question, do you want to be his enemy or do you want to be his friend? Not who you are right now. Maybe you're much more like his enemy than you really even want to be. But what do you want? Not where you're at now. What do you want? Do you want to be his friend or do you want to be his enemy? You say, I want to be his friend because his enemies, like they have a 0% batting average. It never goes well. Oh, sin will tell you it's going to go well. Sin will make all these promises. It will never deliver. It will leave you off worse than when you had gone down the path. His enemies perish. Everyone who faces the warrior king perishes. So why wouldn't you want to be his friend? That's the question. And for some of you, you say, I want to be his friend, but I'm not walking with him now. And I'd say, then repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your sins. Seek his forgiveness. 
It's available to anyone listening in here, online. It's available. Like, you can be his friend if you would yet yield to him as Lord and Savior. You're his enemy. It's not going to go well for you. Some of you, some of, sometimes we are so stubborn and we just fight God. It doesn't go well. We have amazing examples of kindness, of compassion, of servitude in this story. And then we have terrible examples. Terrible, terrible examples of people who couldn't care less about their brothers and their sisters. I pray that all of us in here will be his friend, will obey him, will serve him, will follow him, will stop trying to go it your own way, having your cake and eat it too. I'll worship him, but then I'll also kind of have my side sin or side idol. It doesn't work well. The Israelites, that's what they tried to do, right? We'll worship Yahweh, but then we also got Baal on the side, you know, just in case, right? So that we can have the crops working out and our bank accounts fill. It doesn't work out. It never ends well. And the reality is, if you are his enemy, it will end badly for you. It's not simply to scare you. It's simply to say, this is the reality. This is the story. My hope and prayer is that you take it seriously. That you are, I guess, like Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali, willing to step up, willing to answer the call, willing to serve, We talk about the whole numbers, right? You know, the whole 10% of the people in the church today do 90% of the work. Imagine if that number was different, even a little. Imagine if that was 15% of the people or 20% of the people. It'd be great if it was 100, but imagine if it was just a little bit more. Imagine how many other people we could reach for the gospel. Imagine how many other people we could serve. And in serving, non-believers could see our love for one another and know that we're disciples and followers of Jesus. Oh, that we might all be like the great examples we have in this story. That we might be like the friends of God who rise like the sun. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. God, we love you. And I thank you for this song of Deborah and Barak. Lord, oh, that you should be so kind and give victory And be the warrior king who comes to the aid of his people despite, despite their sin. You still care about them. And that's just as true today with us. Like you care about us, especially those of us in here who we are not on the right path. We are more enemy than we are friend. And even those of us that were that's true, you still care. And oh Lord, that you might grant us a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that we would become your friends. I don't want anyone in here, Lord, to be your enemy. I don't want anyone to be like Reuben and Asher and Gad and Dan and Gilead who just sat by. Right? Just bare minimum. People are in need. I don't care. So Lord, help us to be more like you. To be your friends. To follow you with all of our heart. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.